You're listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes, the podcast all about absolutely 100% true facts that are not made up. I'm your host, Piper Dawes, and with me as always is Christopher Parr, Director of the Munchausen Institute for Totally Real Research. Hi, Chris. Hello. Chris has gathered his favourite four facts. Favourite four facts? I've never said it that way around before. It's fine. It makes sense, but it, I didn't like it. Chris... Chris has gathered his four favourite facts from the Institute's activity this week, and he's going to share them with us today. Well, Chris, we made it to 2022. Do you think the decade's got a defining characteristic yet? Death. <laughs> well, I suppose we'd better get on with it, then. Yeah, in the words of Bill Kilgore, if he were an academic and not a lieutenant colonel and chemical weapon enthusiast, I love the smell of facts in the morning. Okay, here with the first ever fact of the year, it is Chris. Until 1997, the British Parliament employed a wizard. Right. Now, the only actual mythological wizard that may or may not have been based on a real person I know of is Merlin. And I'd assumed until now that he was never a real person. But now this revelation throws up all sorts of possibilities. So with that, when am I getting my Hogwarts letter, Chris? Well, you're not, because Hogwarts is fictional. Right, but wizards are real. Well, I mean, even if they were, like wizards being real and Hogwarts being real are not mutually inclusive. Okay, so it doesn't increase the possibility that Hogwarts might exist at all. No, because Hogwarts is made up by a person in books. So wizards, sorcerers, seers, or what have you, have been associated with English parliaments since at least the Anglo-Saxon Wittenagemot, or Meeting of Wise Men, the King's Advisory Council. The role of this magic man was usually to augur the most auspicious time for parliament to meet or when to vote on certain topics. Oh, cool, okay. Just as a side, that's, I'm guessing that's where she who must not be named got the Wizengamot from. Yes, yeah. Cool. Okay. Probably shouldn't get all my history from Harry Potter. Well, no, because most of it's not real, is it? It's, it's, again, it's, it's fictional. Like, if you base your history on Harry Potter, then you're going to be talking about fucking Dumbledore while everybody else is talking about Winston Churchill. How come nobody's mentioned Dumbledore in this serious discussion about World War II? <laughs> All right, Chris, well, tell, tell me more about wizards and their apparent real existence. So by the 13th century, when what we think of today as Parliament began to take shape, the parliamentary wizard had become an integral part of English government and the role was made official. In his official capacity, the parliamentary wizard not only read the stars or entrails, to see when the best time for Parliament to meet was, but also acted on Parliament's behalf when the politicians couldn't find normal, non-magical solutions to problems. And this usually involved interceding in disputes between nobles and usually entailed reading stars or entrails. So they, this wizard was basically the buffer for all the stuff that they couldn't figure out with just normal day-to-day -day actual real things. So then this wizard would go, well, well I, I, can, I can just look at some guts. 
And they'll be like, yeah, well, that's better than the idea we had, which was, you know, just normal. I mean, it was more if there was some issue between parties and the politicians couldn't solve it. The wizard would come in and he would, you know, cut open a lamb and spread its bits all over the place. Then go, you know, oh, well, you should do this. And then they would be more likely to accept this wizard's advice than the, the politicians. What happened next then, Chris? So the wizard role went on for a few hundred years until the early 18th century when the parliamentary wizard fell out of favour. This was largely because of Isaac Newton, who as Member of Parliament for Cambridge University and Master of the Royal Mint, wielded considerable power in government. Newton saw the position of parliamentary wizard as unscientific and had the wizard removed. This, of course, despite Newton's own decidedly unscientific ventures, like alchemy and finding hidden messages in the Bible. So was it Newton that stopped the whole thing then? That, was he the re- reason that they didn't have anyone at all after that? He was the reason that there was no actual person filling the position after that point. But despite being removed by Newton, the actual post of parliamentary wizard still technically existed. There just wasn't an actual wizard to fill it. Until, that is, 1997, when Tony Blair's newly formed Labour government officially dissolved the post, perhaps out of fear that a parliamentary wizard would advise against the illegal war Blair was even then planning to start. I was going to say, like, what what was happening in 1997 that hadn't come up in the last 400, 400 years, 400 years. So I'm just counting from 17 to 21. That was what I just did then. On my fingers, yep. So they're, they, they were Hold oh, on. What? And where did you get 21 from? 20, 20... Oh, 97 was still the 20th century, <laughs> wasn't it? Rumours out of Downing Street have it that Boris Johnson, eccentric scamp that he is, reinstated and hired a parliamentary wizard in 2019 after being elected prime minister of a developing country. And that Johnson's wizard and his magical chicken guts have been the primary influence behind this government's response to the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Well, that fucking explains everything. (laughs) Did you know that if you say semantic satiation enough times, you get bored and move on to another fact? Here's Chris. Serbian smugglers are smuggling smugglers. Right. (laughs) Ever since there's been bureaucracy, tax, legislation and law, there have been smugglers willing to subvert the system. They were the original punks, often just shifting merchandise just to symbolically reject regulation. From tea, tobacco and tank tops to spirits, spices and strumpets, the smuggling industry has seemingly been here forever. But of all the things that have been smuggled around the globe, I've never heard of smugglers smuggling smugglers. What the facts, Chris? So large-scale smuggling is usually conducted by water, with illicit goods arriving surreptitiously in ports or else making their way to secluded spots on the coast by boat or submarine. This isn't a problem for most countries, as most countries have some coastline or at least a large body of water next to them. However, Serbia in Central Europe 
is a landlocked country. And so Serbian smugglers are limited in how they can smuggle stuff into Serbia. Right. Okay. So so they can't do the normal tricks of the trade, as it were. They can't get in a boat. They have to go, what, on a, on a hike? Um, no. So in order to keep Serbia's illicit economy afloat, Serbian smugglers have had to seek outside help in how to smuggle stuff into Serbia by inviting more experienced international smugglers to teach them how to smuggle on a large scale without access to water. However, these are notorious international smugglers who are wanted by the authorities in almost every country in the world. So they can't just waltz into Serbia. Instead, they've had to smuggle themselves into Serbia to avoid the authorities, using their advanced smuggling knowledge to not only get into the country illegally without recourse to water, but also to get into the country illegally while being a human being, which are notoriously difficult to smuggle under the best of circumstances. I am getting a little confused because we have said smuggling so many times. So just to recap, Chris, and please excuse me if I get this wrong, these better professional mega illegal smugglers are trying to get themselves into Serbia to teach Serbian smugglers how to smuggle properly. But they're finding it difficult because they're people and not spices. Yeah, I don't know what kind of middle-class smuggling you're familiar with, Piper. Where it's just trying to smuggle saffron. So methods the expert smugglers have used to get into Serbia include tunnelling in from a neighbouring country, hiding in an accomplice's luggage, and disguising themselves as an accomplice's emotional support animal. That's a nondescript one there, Chris. I noticed you just said animal and not, you know, like what I would expect. Like, I mean, I've, I've only really heard of emotional support dogs. I mean, what could you disguise yourself as if you're a human being, if it's not a dog? I mean, any kind of animal costume you can get hold of, you could be an emotional support animal of. Yeah, complete <laughs> my an emotional support gorilla. Yeah, Jerry, the emotional support gorilla. <laughs> Is this a regular thing then, these professional smugglers coming into Serbia to teach them how to do it? Or is this something that's just happened once or twice? Um, Yeah, this is what the handful of people did to get into Serbia that one time that they got in to teach the Serbian smugglers how to smuggle. But now that they're in Serbia, the expert smugglers have begun to teach the Serbian smugglers how best to smuggle into Serbia. And methods include the aforementioned tunnels. They're already there. They've done that now. The, the cool smugglers, the, I don't know why I think they're cool. They've got sunglasses and leather jackets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they've, they've just dug them tunnels. They've done half the work for them. Yeah. Hot air balloons in which they would pretend to offer hot air balloon rides to, say, tourists. But actually, they're just getting in illegal stuff. That is pretty clever because no one would suspect that, would they? So hot air balloons full of saffron flying into Serbia. And circuses. Circuses? Uh, Yes, setting up fake travelling circuses that can enter the country by land, but instead of clowns and jugglers and what have you, it's just trailers full of saffron. The the Serbian smugglers, have they managed to improve their craft? Has that changed the, uh, the smuggling trade in Serbia moving forward? Uh, well, this is like fairly recently, the past few years, so we've yet to see if it's helped them much. Yeah, that'll be exciting to watch, won't it? See what happens. Obviously, I have no way of knowing how to do that. But <laughs> I'll ju- just speak to 
my mate Sergio, the Serbian smuggler. Hey, Sergio, got any saffron? Yeah, loads, mate. It's going really well. Come by the circus. We've got loads of saffron. <laughs> so where's the line between a drug mule and a smuggled smuggler? Well, a drug mule is a human being who smuggles drugs into a place. And a smuggled smuggler is a human being who smuggles themselves into a place. I'm a little concerned that you've asked that though, Piper, because one of the famous methods drug mules use is to put the drugs up their own bums. And so in asking where the line between a drug mule and a smuggled smuggler is, you seem to be suggesting that you're imagining a scenario in which a smuggler smuggles themselves into Serbia by putting themselves up somebody's bum. I, I will admit that would be a happy accident, Chris. I have been intentionally Well, it wouldn't be an that. accident. They do it on purpose, obviously. No, no, no me. <laughs> they're walking along and they trip <laughs> up, just fly up somebody's bum who happens to be on a flight to Serbia. <laughs> oh, this is convenient. I'm going to let you all in on a secret. Due to the magic of show business, we're actually taping this episode in the past. For us, it's still 2021. That means I can't reference anything that's currently happening that might change. So here's three facts delivered from our homes, which we may or may not be allowed to leave, to your ears, which may or may not have been vaporised during the alien invasion. There is a cruise based on cruise-based disaster film, The Poseidon Adventure. In preparation for this fact, I looked up the different themed cruises that are available. I guess you'd think I'd have watched the Poseidon Adventure, and honestly, I probably should have done. But I did this instead. Did you know there's a football-themed cruise, a Harry Potter-themed cruise, a cruise exclusively available to people called Tom, and a murder mystery cruise? Honestly, as someone who's never really been at sea, I'm excited enough by the idea of a plain old ordinary cruise not to need all these theme ideas. But yeah, this isn't actually about cruises per se. I guess this is more about the Poseidon Adventures. Tell us more, Chris. Um, I don't really get the point of a Harry Potter-themed cruise because there's no cruises in Harry Potter. So it's like, it's all on a boat, but they're never on a boat in Harry Potter. I mean, football has very little to do with the sea either. Well, yeah, but football is... I mean, you can play football anywhere you want, but Harry Potter is a very specific thing set in very specific locations, none of which are a cruise. Maybe it's... Just that Harry Potter fans tend to be so infuriatingly annoying that having them do it all at sea is a benefit to everyone. <laughs> so if you kill them, it's not a crime. <laughs> so in the Poseidon Adventure, the 1972 disaster film, the SS Poseidon capsizes and the surviving passengers and crew attempt to escape. The Poseidon Adventure role-playing cruise allows passengers to role-play as their favourite characters from the film during a controlled capsizing. What, so it actually capsizes, but it's intentional? Yeah, they use ballast and other ship stuff to turn the ship... (laughs) Do you know what a ballast is? Because I fucking don't. It's the stuff that keeps the ship afloat. Okay. There's a load of ship words that I know that I, I have no meaning for. I mean, I just I just hear words and I'm like, no one really knows what that means. They just say words. Well, some people know what it means, especially those who work on ships. Oh, yeah. The cruise liner workers will be going nuts for this fact. Or, you know, naval people. They know ship stuff, don't they? Or pirates. That's true. Do you think we've got any pirate listeners? I hope so. 
Ahoy, mateys. Thanks for listening. <laughs> so characters you can play on this cruise include Reverend Frank Scott, played by Gene Hackman in the film, an unorthodox preacher who believes that God helps those who help themselves. Yes. And isn't he being sent to Africa to do mission work as a punishment? Somebody's been on Wikipedia. <laughs> Detective Lieutenant Mike Rogo, played by Ernest Borgnine, and his wife Linda Rogo, played by Stella Stevens. So hang on, the guy's the guy's name in the, the character's name is Mike Rogo. Yeah. That sounds like a real person's name. What's the guy who plays him called? Ernest Borgnine. It sounds made up. The real name sounds made up, and the the, the pretend name sounds like it's, it's a real name. Yeah, anyway. Brother and sister Susan and Robbie Shelby, played by Pamela C. Martin and Eric Shee. Manny and Belle Rosen, uh, Jack Albertson and Shelley Winters. Retired Jewish store owners travelling to see their grandson in Israel. James Martin, played by comedian Red Buttons. A health-conscious bachelor. Now, that is a made-up name because it's a pseudonym. I was going to ask. <laughs> That's a stupid pseudonym as well. Um, apparently, he got it from when he was working as a bellboy at a hotel and his bellboy suit had red buttons and the customer kept calling him Red Buttons. So he adopted it as his stage name when he became a comedian. Nonny Parry, played by Carol Lindley, the ship's singer. And of course, Acres, played by Roddy McDowell, an injured waiter. And Captain Harrison, played by Leslie Nielsen. What? Leslie Nielsen's in it? Oh, I love him. He's well funny. Yes, well, not in this. Oh. This does sound like a sort of comedy. It doesn't sound like a disaster movie, Chris. They've all got silly names and they're all colourful characters. It's all a bit silly. From someone who's not watched the movie, it sounds very silly. Then you ended the whole thing with, like, Leslie Nielsen. I was like, oh, right, now I get the vibe of this. And then you're like, no, it's serious. They're, they're, all, they're all sad. Well, of course they're sad. The cruise ship has capsized. <laughs> Do they really get into it then? Yeah, they play the characters. Passengers usually attend in groups and decide who gets to play which character among themselves. Solitary passengers who are fairly common are grouped together in groups which don't have enough people to cover all the characters. Some people have to play multiple characters, which means that some people get to be both Gene Hackman and Ernest Borgnine. What a treat! That is. <laughs> I've noticed that you've not mentioned any of the crew, which I assume are a big part of the film. Did you not hear me mention Acres, an injured waiter, and Captain Harrison, the captain? Okay, I'm going to revise what I've said because, <laughs> because yes, I did. I just ignored it. Right, so what happens if one of these people who've paid probably quite good money to get on this cruise, what happens if they decide that they want to role play as. Someone who's integral to the running of the ship, I guess, is what I'm saying. Well, other than the waiter and the captain, none of the crew are major characters in the film. So if they insisted on role-playing as an engine room worker or something, then their character would probably die very early in the cruise, and they would either have to just sit the rest out or choose another character. Is this part of the policy of the cruise thing so they don't mess anything up or is it actually what happens in the film you mean in the film when a crew member dies 
the actor playing the crew member then chooses another character to play in the film <laughs> as it's playing all. when you're watching it on ITV4. <laughs> no, not at all. Oh my god. No, I mean I mean do like do they insist on basically if, if you're playing a crew member that is integral to the running of the ship or can access places that the that you shouldn't be going as a member of the public or things like that, do they kill you off pretty early on so that you have to pick someone else? Or is that actually how the film works? Do all the crew die? Well, yeah, basically. But I mean, it sounds like what you're getting at is if you are all playing as a member of the crew on this cruise, you can just walk around the ship and do what you want because you are nominally part of the crew. But that's obviously not how it would work. Yes, uh, I think this is a much simpler concept than I'm making it. As usual, yes. So, Chris, what happens if, just hypothetically, if this, if this cruise ship has its own emergency? Well, it's interesting you should ask. So in 1999, the crew of a Poseidon Adventure role-playing cruise lost control of the capsizing, plunging the passengers into a real-life nautical disaster. One of the company's sister cruises, a role-playing cruise based on the Poseidon Adventure's 1979 sequel Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, happened to be passing and boarded the actually capsized pretend SS Poseidon. Unfortunately, the passengers role-playing as Michael Caine's Captain Mike Turner and his salvage crew took the pleas for help from the passengers role-playing as Gene Hackman's Reverend Frank Scott and fellow survivors as part of the role-playing experience and so declined to call for assistance from the Coast Guard. What, did they all die then? Well, not immediately, no. <laughs> oh, good. That's good. Well, at least it was drawn out. That's, that's some good news. But everybody was eventually killed when a third ship collided with the first two when engaged in a Speed 2 cruise control role-playing cruise. Here's the last fact of the show. We hope you've been listening and this isn't just background noise to stop you from staring into the abyss. Actually, that's a service I'd be happy to provide, to be honest. Welcome to the Abyss Avoidance Podcast. Here's another fact to prevent you from pondering the nature of existence and your place in the universe. You can complete your football sticker collection by buying hand-drawn stickers. No, I never collected football stickers, Chris, because I don't like football or stickers. Don't like stickers? No. I mean, they're kind of pointless, aren't they? They're, they're sticky, which is annoying. And then they're not sticky, which is also annoying. They're sticky for a little bit and you put them on your clothes and then there's just nothing, isn't there? Like, on your clothes? A... Don't put them on your clothes. Well, what are you supposed to put them on then? You're supposed to put them on, you know, smooth surfaces like your laptop or a wall. I got like several, you know, happy birthday stickers, which you put on your clothes. That was that, that was my first interaction with stickers. And then I was like, well, what the fuck are these little football men doing? And I tried to put it on my clothes and it was just boring and rubbish. But why were you putting football stickers on your clothes? You don't even like football. You've said as much. Everyone had all these football stickers. I was like, well, there must be something I'm missing. It's just- Rob, I didn't you notice that their football stickers were stuck in albums? Albums? Yeah, the books that you put the stickers in. Oh, not like music out. Okay, right. Fuck me. Sorry. <laughs> so Panini football stickers, for those not in the know, Piper, are not football stickers that you stick on Paninis 
or stickers with pictures of paninis playing football or paninis that you stick on footballs. They are stickers produced by the company Panini, which feature images of football players or soccer players. They are released in collections tied to various football competitions like the English Premier League or the World Cup. And each collection has a sticker for every player in that competition. And you collect them and you put them in a big book with blank spaces for the stickers. Okay, so it's sort of like stamps. It's like stamp collecting. Yeah, not like just stamps in their everyday use. Don't try and send a letter with a picture of Harry Kane stuck on it. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's more like stamp collecting than Pokemon cards. No, Cristiano Ronaldo does not have a 60 damage 5 attack. <laughs> okay, okay. So this is exciting for people, is it? Apparently, yes. <laughs> So Panini football sticker collections are notoriously difficult to complete. They come in packs of six with a random assortment of players. And the rarest stickers can have odds of just one in 1,500 of being in any given pack. And it's estimated that you'd have to buy 993 packs which would cost £893.70 to have just a 90% chance of completing a collection. Right, so it's very hard to get a complete set. And, and that's, the, that's the goal, is it? That's the, no pun intended, that's, that's the aim, is to get, to get a whole set of football men. Yes. Has anyone managed it? People manage it, yeah. Okay, so, they, so, so people do it in the normal way yeah but it's difficult to do in the normal way uh, there are ways to complete your collection without buying thousands and thousands of pounds worth of packs you can instead spend thousands and thousands of pounds buying somebody else's stickers if they've got the one you want or you can buy a hand-drawn sticker from a seller on ebay who offers to draw whichever stickers you need to complete your collection does it have the same value as the original the real thing i mean anyone can draw anyone can draw on a piece of paper can't they yes and these hand-drawn stickers are of course not officially endorsed by padini and could be considered cheating by football sticker sticklers but there's no prize or anything for completing a collection. So you're only cheating yourself if you complete your collection with a hand-drawn sticker. And really, who in this day and age, this 21st century mile-a-minute age, has time to draw their own football stickers? That is true. But in order to stop people abusing the service and taking all of the alleged fun out of collecting football stickers, the seller will only draw one card per customer per collection. And you need to provide proof that you do not have the real card and that it is the only card you need to complete your collection. Oh, because so this is quite serious business then. Of course it is. It's Panini football stickers. So these, these drawings... Are they good drawings? I will post some pictures of these on our Twitter and you can judge for yourself, Piper. Well, I imagine they're beautiful paintings of football men. You can imagine all you want, Piper. 
that's it. That's the end of this episode of Chickens Can't See Cubes with me, Piper Dawes. I can be found on Twitter at Piper Talks and, of course, Christopher Parr from the Munchausen Institute. I can be found on Twitter at Trilby Norton and the Institute can be found at M-U-I-N-F-O-T-O-R-E-R-E. You can also contact the podcast on Twitter at C-Cubes and Facebook and Instagram at Chickens Can't See Cubes. If you want to join in the conversation on Discord, PM us for a link. Thank you for listening to Chickens Can't See Cubes. And remember, you probably could make it up, but we haven't. Honest. And we'll catch you once again on next week's show. Goodbye. Good. Bye. Right, hang on. Let me just take off my jumper because I'm warm now. Are you always taking off your jumper when we do this? What's wrong with you? Don't wear a jumper. No, because I'm not. I'm not. I don't overheat until I start communicating with you. For some reason, I start to overheat. Does this effect you have on me?